Welcome, welcome. Steve Dunn Podcast. I am thrilled today to be speaking with Landis Wade. Landis was a lawyer in Charlotte for 35 years. He left his law firm about three years ago and became a podcaster. As the host of the Charlotte Readers Podcast, Landis speaks with authors about their works, and he is an author himself. He's written several books, and most recently, Deadly Declarations, a legal thriller set in a retirement community which explores the real-world mystery of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. I'm so happy to welcome Landis Wade. Chief Cook and Bottle Washer on the, on the podcast. I do hire out some things, but I've learned uh, th- this whole journey of trying something new. Um, I signed up for an account with Canva.com, and an, even an idiot like me can learn how to create graphics. And then I signed up for Headliner, which allows you to create these audiograms you mentioned where you pull a clip from your podcast, and I've gotten pretty quick at doing that. And I think people like to hear those little 30-second clips, you know, on social media, and it kind of draws them in. And so those have actually been fun because I've learned to create a graphic that I used to think I'd have to hire a, you know, graphic designer to do. And, and I can do it in, you know, a couple of minutes and have fun experimenting, and I can experiment with the audiograms. Um, y- you know, the video, I'm, I'm experimenting with YouTube and doing some things. I still like the audio podcast format more than the video, so I just do some occasional you know, video lives just to kind of, you know, get out from behind the microphone and play with it a it's little bit. It's a very different it's a very format. Different, it's a different it, medium. Yeah. It's a whole different thing. And yeah. there's a lot of technical considerations that have yeah. to be taken into account. Yeah. Uh, include, and that's part of the reason why I haven't attempted it. Right, to me, right. this was a struggle. Just what we, you yeah, and I are yeah, doing right no, now. No, you got a nice setup here. It's great. Uh, it's, uh, y- y- I can tell you get good sound here in the headphones work and uh you know you're plugged into your laptop and i'm sure you've got an editing system involved so hey man you can podcast well (laughs) you're very kind to say uh but i if you only knew how many hours were involved in figuring out just the basics of uh getting two audio streams into one place everything's a learning curve i don't even want to think how long it took me to edit when i first started Uh, probably seven hours for an episode to where now i've gotten it down to i can pretty much listen to it uh, as I'm going, I've created templates. I can drop the audio in. I use a certain editing software. And while I'm doing that, I can actually post some graphics and do some other things. So if I record an episode at 10.30 in the morning, you know, by 1.30 or even 12.30, I'm done with everything. I'm just amazed at the quantity that you're able to do. You've been posting the Charlotte Readers podcast twice a week consistently for a while. And you... You, not only do you have to do the episodes, but you're also reading the books. I originally did all my interviews in person in the studio, but if I'd kept to that, I wouldn't have now interviewed authors in 28 states and three countries. There are plenty of uh, authors out there that are eager to be on podcasts, as I found out, given all the submissions that I receive at the website. And unfortunately, I can't take all of them as much as I'd like to because I enjoy reading the books and I enjoy setting them up and only have so much time in the day and you know i I realized for the podcast that uh while i enjoyed being in people's presence uh you know not all authors that i've had on the show are within driving distance of of the studio that i worked in and you know i just uh i mean the bigger named authors uh some of them are in charlotte of course but uh you know if they're going to be on the show it's going to usually be by this medium of uh you know the internet and i think authors have also come to the realization that uh in-person events are not everything i mean you want them you want to interact with people when you're an author to be with people but you can also get a lot of exposure over the internet and record it from your own home so i think uh you know in some ways uh it's like we're back to that's forced us to, (laughs) to learn things that we wouldn't otherwise have taken on and we discover the benefits of things that we wouldn't have been able to perceive. I, I can imagine for an author uh, giving a presentation at Park Road Books, doing a, a, a reading and a Q&A with an audience at a bookstore. If it's recorded, then anybody can see it anytime, forever. Exactly. In fact, you know, I, I tell the authors, I do this uh, monthly 
Zoom to Facebook Live event, we'll pick a topic. I can put two authors on, and last night I did one on writing mysteries, and I had uh, two mystery writers myself, and we talked for an hour. We talked about the books. We talked about all the things that go into writing mysteries, and I don't know, we, maybe we had 15 or 20 people live, right? Not that many, but when we're done, we can post it to YouTube, we can post it to Facebook, post it to the website, and people can watch it whenever they want, and suddenly you've got an additional form of marketing media that you can use in promoting your books. One of the reasons why you have the time to do this, mm -hmm. the, the time to learn all the new technologies that you've learned both during the pandemic and before, and to read all the books and prepare for all the interviews is because you are no longer a practicing <laughs> attorney. Hey, can we hear some clapping? Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'm curious about your process of leaving the law firm. You're a partner in McGuire Woods for 35 years. You had a 35-year legal career. You left as someone who also left uh, a partnership in a law firm and took a different direction in my own career. I'm, I, I'm curious, 35 years is a full career, and I wonder if you perceived your leaving as sort of retiring in the natural course of things or whether that was more of a decision to, to just stop being a lawyer for reasons that were personal to you. Yeah, well, it, it wasn't a reason. I mean, I, I, I tried to make myself understand that I wasn't quitting because I'd never, you know, wage don't quit. You, you don't quit, son. You know, just stay with it, stay with it. But, you know, in my 50s, um, when the kids were gone, I wasn't attending Little League games. I wasn't attending high school baseball games. Uh, I wasn't doing a lot. You know, they were in college. They were gone. Uh, I was looking for things to do. It just wasn't as exciting to me to uh, be dealing with uh, these e-discovery issues that we were dealing with and how the practice law had changed and I wasn't getting to court as often because cases were settling thanks to people like you thank you very much you know and we weren't getting the trials that, that we had in the past and so I was kind of you know I wrote a couple of books so to kind of keep my interest but when I got toward age 60 I was thinking you know I kind of want to do something more creative in my 60s than uh, help you know a big bank win another case you know or lose another case depending on what <laughs> whether I want to lose and I just want to do something that uh, you know kind of energized my soul a little bit and because I'd been with writing a few books I thought I know I'll do no something I know absolutely nothing about I'll I'll start a podcast and and it's interesting uh, Steve I you know I think I've worked as many hours or more <laughs> than I, it, it, I I don't call it work in the same fashion I, I'll put time into it but you know um, the time investment was just people say, well, Lance, you're not really retired. And I said, no, I'm, I'm just doing something else and I'm not getting paid for it. You consistently refer to yourself as a recovering trial lawyer. And you have said that uh, you met your wife, Janet, when you're both in law school at Wake Forest, but that she left the profession to do something worthwhile, <laughs> by which you meant uh, becoming a teacher. Yeah. And so there's an aspect of, I don't know if cynicism is too strong yeah. a word, but you've, um, you, you've got a, um, an ambivalence about the practice of law, at least as the way that you did it. And, yeah. and I, I'm foreshadowing a little bit our conversation that we're going to have about Craig Travail. Yeah. When my daughter was three, she said to me in the parking lot of the daycare, mommy takes care of sick people for her work <laughs> what do you do for your work daddy and i swallowed hard and i thought about it for a minute and i i couldn't bring myself to tell her well <laughs> daughter i shift money around from one account to another you know that's ba at the end of the day basically what it is i told her i told her i, I try to help people resolve their disputes which is a little bit more what I'm it's more directly what I'm doing now uh, mm -hmm. as a mediator but w did you always have um, that feeling about the law practice or was it the advent of e-discovery or was it the pressure of billing that changed for you over the years as much as I enjoyed the activities of the courtroom I don't really like conflict all that much you know and I've often found that it was a lot more fun to write about conflict than it was to experience it on a daily basis part of the reason I wanted to shift to to writing and podcasting and that kind of thing. But I do think that over time, um, the law practice changed. It became more of a business. Um, it, it, the e-discovery was just sort of out of control. I, you know, the cases I loved were really, I handled a lot of cases over the years for the school board, and there really wasn't any discovery involved. You know, you'd have to give each side some papers, and then you'd go and have a hearing. Those were a lot of fun. I mean, we actually got there and had, hearings had trials called witnesses 
and we didn't spend a year trading hundreds of thousands of emails that kind of wore me out the whole email e-discovery stuff it wasn't the trading of the emails uh, yeah. that got me so much as it was the inevitable motions and disputes about right. the emails that and so just for for our audience members who don't know what we mean by e-discovery um, I think it's worth talking about for a second because it, sure. it, it played a role in my decision <laughs> to leave yeah. the practice of law as <laughs> yeah. well yeah. and and what we're talking about is that in any civil litigation there's a process through which the parties discover the facts and a lot of that involves exchanging documents with each other that are pertinent to the case used to be it wasn't uncommon for the only evidence about conversations to be people's memories about what they said <laughs> emails completely changed all that but what we're talking about with e-discovery is a really robust part of the practice uh, that involves the combing through computer systems and it involves um, it requires a lot of technical knowledge, if not expertise. It requires a lot of labor. Uh, there's a lot of just man hours that are devoted to the going over, the reviewing of all of those documents. And it provides rich fodder for lawyers to argue with each other. I mean, it's, it just becomes, uh, I, I eventually I began to realize that a dispute about electronic discovery I, I, I believed was inevitable and it was just part of the playbook and I had no um, use for that as a lawyer I, I was very frustrated by that I was and I was a small firm guy I was doing the best I could I think there were a lot of times when lawyers on the other sides of cases thought that I was trying to mess with them and when I was just inept frankly on, on a couple of occasions they let the, like, metadata I didn't give them the <laughs> metadata in the way that they wanted you know and I was like man I told the guy that I had to pay the money to give you what you wanted if he didn't give you what you wanted I'm sorry but it wasn't I'm, I'm not trying here to to yeah. be difficult did the practice change or did we change uh, that, that's a very good question I, I, I think there's some if I'm being honest I think there's some truth to that in the sense that after a while um, I didn't enjoy it quite as much as I did when I was a younger lawyer you know ready to save the world and be Perry Mason in the courtroom and all this kind of things, uh, I kind of matured, you know, and uh, I hope that uh, that was seen by my adversaries, you know, in my 50s that I wasn't quite as difficult to deal with maybe as I was in my 30s and 40s. And, uh, you know, I, I really uh, respected those lawyers and, uh, who maintained their composure, maintained their cool under the stresses of the practice of law because, there's a lot of stress out there, and you see this as a mediator and uh, when you watch other people come into the room and when somebody overreacts, you know, you probably say to yourself, you know, maybe they're just having a bad day. You know, maybe something's not going well. They're probably not really that person, and I thought about that over the years, and I think the circumstances do get a hold of people sometimes, and I regret some of the things. I may have been too, you know, in my 30s and 40s, but in my 50s it was like, you know, I don't really have to do this forever. Um, I mean, uh, is there something you know better that would be more fun to do than practicing law? And I started to think about, uh, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to die at my desk. I'd seen, I'd read some stories about lawyers dying at my de at their desk, and I thought that was the saddest thing to me that uh, you know something like that could happen that they're not out experiencing you know something new, something strange, which something different. Uh, but of course, we know about lawyers. I talk about them in my book about how, you know, they don't know when to get out. Um, they don't know when to quit. My dad worked uh, into his 80s uh, in the practice of law because he told me, Landis, I just don't know what else I would do. And I think that's a fault that uh, follows us lawyers around. We get really good at doing one thing and we think, well, I don't know what to do. I mean, what am I going to do if I stop practicing law? And my answer is anything. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people n never leave, yeah. um, but you did, uh, and I did, and I, I recall along the way there were a couple of moments that stood out that were bracing moments. One was when I realized that I didn't have to do this forever. I mean, really believed mm -hmm. it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to think about it, and then it's something else to think I myself in real life don't have to do this forever. Yeah. And then there's another moment where I made the decision that I was – going to leave the law firm and yeah. and I remember the the incredible lightness of being that existed just in the moment of making that decision and all of the things I didn't love about the job from that point forward 
didn't bother me nearly as much because yeah. I knew that there was an end point. Was it like that for you too? Yeah, and, and you know, I have to confess that uh, doing it at age 60 is a lot different than doing it at age 40. I mean, I, you know, I had built up a little in my retirement, uh, so I had the luxury of being able to make this decision. I did. I still do some part-time arbitration, which helps pay the podcast <laughs> and writing bills and uh, maybe take you know a trip or go out to dinner if we can ever go out to dinner you know after covid but uh you know i did have that luxury so i I can't just say hey you know quit law and go do something else i mean i I think everybody has to make that choice now you didn't you you just redefined your career which i you know i had given that thought to that kind of thing in the past uh, but my problem was that i didn't mediate enough in my practice to actually then take it and go mediate full-time or arbitrate full-time and uh, so I was more 90%. Right, so you became a podcaster yeah. so instead for, for the money? <laughs> That's your argument? I, mean, I, I didn't either. No, I just, I just yeah, did it. I, did, I, I just jumped no, into the deep no, end. I, I've been running a nonprofit corporation for about three years now it's uh (laughs) (laughs) that's a uh, that's an optimistic way to put it i think yeah yeah yeah. it's uh well nonprofits, and we try to provide some value doesn't mean we make any money um but uh, i've really uh enjoyed the community that's developed uh, on the podcast because i've met over 300 authors and you know it's just been interesting to me all the different uh things that those authors do some are still working full-time some are writing full-time some are hybrids they do a little of both and uh you know it's it's made me grateful to have that opportunity what's your process uh, for the podcast do you do you read all the books yeah up until this point in time i've read all the books and uh, it's been fun what's been hard to do is figure out which books i should commit to read sometimes uh, i mean i'm reading all different genres so it's not like I can just read, you know, the latest John Grisham legal thriller or my naval history books I like to read. You know, I'm reading literary fiction. I'm reading some poetry. I've read, uh, I think, I've read every genre, right? And the great thing is, though, that if I keep an open mind, which was sometimes hard for me to do as a lawyer, you know, I I read things that are outside my comfort zone that actually make me stop and think, wow, that was interesting. That was fun. That was engaging. Engaging. And so... Um, it that has been part of my process to to read the books and uh, uh, by doing so, I think based upon the feedback the authors give me offline after we're done, they appreciate that. They, they it's not just a a short radio clip of a, hey tell me about your book. Tell you me know? about your book. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, so how'd you get into writing? <laughs> yeah, so how'd you get into writing? Yeah, so so they appreciate the fact that I've read the book because I'm bringing out parts of the book that uh, you know you wouldn't know about unless you read it. And they like that. And the conversations become more like conversations and not, you know, sort of PR pitches. What do you like to explore in your conversations with authors? Yeah, so, of course, when we talk about the book itself, I I like to find out, um, you know, why they write. And I always ask a question when it comes to the writing life segment, which I ask a number of different questions in. One question that I keep going back to is, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value, that had you known it when you started, based on everything you've learned since then, what would it be? And I've asked this of New York Times bestsellers, I've asked the first-time authors, and there's a lot of consistency in these answers. Um, it's things like, you know, don't try to write to the market, just write for the enjoyment of writing. Don't try to take it too seriously, you know. And Steve Barry, I had on the show, he was a New York Times bestselling author, and he's, I don't know. 30 million books in how I many countries and um, it took him I said so Steve you were an overnight success right he says yeah but it took me 10 years you know and that's the thing that I keep coming back to in, in podcasting right uh, when you first start one there's n- nobody listening but your wife you know and she doesn't even she's probably lying when she tells you <laughs> that she is and, and and so and then you build it up over time and and the same thing's true with writing you know there's so many authors that write their first book who have no idea what's involved in the marketing side of book you know selling and it becomes very depressing for them after they put their book out they've spent years working on whether they're traditionally published or independently published and so that's a question i like to explore because it gets to the heart of why they're writing in the first place and it and sometimes they will admit that they had these delusions of grandeur that they would 
you know, write that book. They'd become that best-selling author. They'd just, their lightning would strike, and then reality would set in. And then they reflect on that, and they say, well, that wasn't really what I wanted to write anyway. And they would say, just relax. Take your time. Rejection's part of the game. Um, I had one author, I had a whole section on rejection one time, and I loved this uh, author's response. She said when she got pieces back that had been rejected, she said, oh, I'm so happy you've come home. Now I can send you out to somebody that really cares about you. <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the marketing um, side of writing. And this is something that from where I sit, you are making a lot of effort at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written about it. Uh, I the, the, you, you tracked me down <laughs> to send me a copy of this book right. in advance. So the fact that Steve Dunn was on yeah. your radar for that purpose tells yeah. me that you were digging deep. You're you're looking <laughs> no, for people. No, man, I knew you. I saw you in the gym. I saw you in the gym. I knew you were a mediator. I figured we had a few things in common here. So Yeah. You know. Well, the point being, though, mm-hmm. that you are hustling to – try to make this thing happen. You're not mm-hmm. just trying to write for the pure satisfaction of writing. And, mm-hmm. and if anybody ever reads it, that's fine. You're, you're getting out there and trying to make it happen. And I wonder if it's, I, I will suppose, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that this isn't because you need the money and it isn't because you need to have your ego stroked. But I think that it's because you only have one way of being and mm-hmm. that all that energy and all of that passion and capability that you used to put into your law practice, you're now just putting into everything else that you're doing. And if you're going to write a book, well, by gosh, you know, what is, uh, if a, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear right. it, then what's the point? Yeah. It's interesting. When I was practicing law, I didn't like marketing, but I came around to it because it was part of the process. Um, as an author, I thought early on when I wrote a couple of books that it was very challenging and, and, I'd never been a very good marketer as a lawyer, so this is going to be a challenge. But I had to open my mind to the fact that if you write something and you're proud of what you've put together and you've put a year or two or three into it, why not go out and try to market it? I mean, I I try not to do what my dad did in high school. He sold encyclopedias one summer, and the, and the way he sold them, he went to the next-door neighbor's door and he said, you don't want to buy any of these encyclopedias, do you? <laughs> And so that's how a lot of authors sometimes approach it. They're reluctant to say, well, I don't want to toot my own horn. I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And I try to encourage them and try to encourage myself. Look, you know, you wrote this thing. You're proud of it. Um, not everybody's going to like it. People like different kinds of books. That's okay if not everybody likes your book. But get out there and let people know about it, you know, and do it in a lot of different ways and try to have fun with it. So that's what I'm trying to do on, on this tour. I just recorded a little piece that will come out the day the, the print book comes out where I've got my wife that's into 18th century costumes. I said, you need to order me a Captain Jack thing. So I got the tricorn hat. I've got the 18th century vest. I've got the shirt they wear. I did a little video where I'm talking about, uh, you know, the book. And so that will come out, and I'll have fun doing it. And, yeah, so marketing is that uh, thing that authors, uh, well, it, in any business, people sometimes shy away from it. But it's the lifeblood of finding readers. And I guess the shorter answer to your question is, I just want people to read the book. You know, you got to find a way to make that happen. Right. And it doesn't come naturally. And there, there's different levels of this, I guess, in terms of doing anything creative. Um, you, there are the people who just do it purely for their own satisfaction. And then I think most folks fall in, most folks who, are, who take the next step uh, are willing to put themselves out there, willing to uh, be public in their endeavors, but like you say, they don't want to either, they don't know how or they feel that it's unseemly in a way mm-hmm. to try to sell somebody something. And there's a lot of mediators that are that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, get, I get talked to a lot by people who are either newly certified or thinking about being certified or have been mediators for a while and they're wondering why they're not doing more mediations. And almost, almost always the reason is because they're not hustling out there right. and, and making it happen. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who get certified and they, you know, they maybe send an email out to the bar and they say, I'm here. Yeah, and they yeah. wait for the business to come flowing in the door. And I'll bet yeah. you there's a lot of authors who do that too. They'll, right. they'll take the step to put the book out online, but maybe not take the next step. There's so much that goes into writing a book, right? I mean, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into just c- creating that book and so 
you, they're the first time authors have spent all that time doing that and then they look up when it's publication day and they start calling their friends or whatever and unless they've got a huge marketing arm behind them which only happens at the top of the top for authors you know even the traditionally published authors who get that contract and they're so excited about it sometimes they realize well, where's the marketing of my book and why is it in all the stores and who's getting it in the stores and how do I do that and so no matter where you are whether traditionally published or independently published you're gonna have to get out there and promote your work and it starts with your website and your social media platform and everybody's going oh god I hate social media oh god, I hate hate this technology thing well hire somebody I hired somebody to do my website I work with some social media people I hired a publicist again another nonprofit operation I've got going here but you know you hire people that to do the things that you don't know how to do or aren't comfortable doing and then you do the things that you want to learn how to do or are comfortable doing and then you get out there and you know press the flesh and and talk to people and have a good time with it and it's just uh, you know I think people are coming around authors are coming around to the the fact that uh, you know this is something they got to do but there's so many choices Steve to make about what to do sometimes it can be overwhelming about well, what do I focus on what do I pick where do I go what do I do and uh, so you know my advice there is start small start with what you are comfortable doing and build from there and and authors you know I tell them and I'm trying to tell myself this it's a long game I mean the way to sell your first book is to write your second book and the way to sell your second book is to write your third book and don't put it all your heart and soul in one book you know becoming if you're gonna become a writer author and you want to write and publish put a bunch of books out there and then finally something will happen and they'll buy your previous books <laughs> and that's when you will maybe make back the money you've invested well, and it seems like there's an aspect of uh, experimentation and trial and error oh, with yeah. it as well. And you've written about this. Uh, you have a blog on your website that um, one of your blog posts in particular talks very specifically mm -hmm. about your plan uh, for this book, Deadly mm -hmm. Declarations. And we're it, it's getting to be crunch time on that right. book, right? You, right? You've been laying the foundation, but it's all there. If anybody's thinking about publishing their work, uh, that blog post will tell you at least here's what Landis Wade is doing now. This is the and you've very clearly labeled the things that you're doing that you think are maybe best practices versus the things that you're doing that you're just kind of rolling the dice just right. to see if it works or not, right? And, yeah. and I imagine that you're going to continue iterating on that process. Mm -hmm. You've set up deadly declarations where some of these characters might appear again. Right, that wouldn't right. surprise me at all if that happens. Yeah. And so um, and so where we are now. It, I'm I'm catching you at a, a, a fortuitous time. I mean, again, the thoroughness of your effort is reflected in the fact that you're here with me right. on this podcast. <laughs> I, I, I hope that you're oh, doing I'm, other podcasts as yeah, well. No, I'm, happy, I'm happy to be here. Well, this I'm, is great. I'm yeah. happy that you are here, but we, this is an exciting moment, really. Mm -hmm. As we record this, it is March 23rd, and mm -hmm. you're just about to – you've got the electronic – version of the book is out right the, correct the yeah. ebook is out and the print book is about to come out is that right that's right april 5th and the idea be, it was important to you to make sure that this thing was fully and finally underway and out there before may 20th and why is that yeah well may 20th figures uh, heavily into the plot for the book may 20th is what we call mech deck day here in charlotte north carolina uh, it's what i call history hiding in plain sight they don't teach it in the schools they don't really talk about it a whole lot. You got to run into somebody that knows about it, who'll tell you about it, and then you'll go, "What? What are you talking about?" You know. And it's one of these stories that, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, in the early 2000s, some folks got together and uh, formed the May 20th Society, or maybe it's before that, and decided to bring back honoring MacDeck Day because for many years, Charlotte, North Carolina, with the help of others from around North Carolina celebrated this day with parades five presidents came to north uh, to charlotte uh, in the 1900s to help charlotte celebrate mech deck day because as the story goes on that day may 20th 1775 in the little town called charlotte george washington called it a trifling place militia leaders got together and thomas polk was the leader they held a meeting they debated what happened in Concord in Massachusetts on April 19th, and they declared independence for the most powerful nation in the world. 
And then Captain Jack got on a horse and rode those documents 500 miles to Philadelphia. And then they burned in a fire in 1800, and the Virginians said it never happened, and the controversy was struck. So what we're talking about here, <laughs> the mech deck, we, you say it's not taught in schools, but it used to be taught in schools. It was taught as fact in schools. And what, uh, what we're talking about is the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, uh, which, according to tradition around these parts, uh, was signed in prior to right. July 4, 1776. And so it has been a point of pride in North Carolina and in Mecklenburg County, where Charlotte is situated, uh, specifically to be what we call first in freedom, to be the first people uh, in the new world to declare their independence uh, from the great British Empire. And it's also widely believed not to have existed, right? <laughs> right, I, right. The, the, there's a lot of, con there's, it's, it is a historical mystery, which it, is it, interesting in itself because there aren't so many of them. It, it is a perfect, I have to give Scott Seifert a shout out because he's a, a local author here who's an amateur historian who wrote the nonfiction book on the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. And as he says in his book, neither side can be right, no matter how much they want to be. Which sounds a lot like what happens in a mediation sometimes, you know. You can't always prove necessarily what happened, but, but each side has got their own version, you know, of the truth. Well, the same is true with the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which makes it a perfect story for a novel. <laughs> you know, you well, know. and you also, there, there is the possibility for uh, rev ongoing revelation. I mean, there, there, there's right. the possibility for, of discovery here. Uh, these things happen, you know, yeah. archaeologically. Uh, every, now, every now and then some scroll will be discovered somewhere that changes mm -hmm. our minds on something or a, or a mandible will be unearthed in right. you know, some continent that makes us think like, wow, you know, people with the whole story of humanity is, differently, is different from what we thought. It's entirely possible that some newspaper article or document uh, could be discovered somewhere, uh, someday, that sheds light on this. But f for our purposes right now, I guess suffice it to say that it's controverted whether the Mecklenburg Declaration even existed. Uh, there's some folks who are pretty passionate about it, I would say, on both sides. And you make use of this historical mystery in your new book, Deadly Declarations, uh, which is about to come out. And um, I've read it. You were kind enough to send me an advance copy of the book. One of the things that strikes me about it that I hope to ask you about today is the very colorful characters who populate the pages of your book and who populate the retirement community around which it is set. And our protagonist, uh, Craig Travail, who strikes me as uh, a bit of a reluctant hero, mm -hmm. a, a guy who is at the end of his own legal career uh, where that he spent at a, a, one of the tall towers in uptown <laughs> Charlotte working at one of the big law firms that he's He's left the law firm, and uh, he's in a transitional period in his wife. In his life, his wife has died, and he's moving into a retirement community. And uh, some of the characters that he meets there include uh, the very memorable Jaeger Alexander, who I uh, understand from reading some stuff that you've written started out as kind of a minor character, but then sort of took on a life of his own, which sounds like something <laughs> Jaeger would do. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, you know, I was telling somebody the other day when they were asking about Jaeger. I said, you know, I was writing this novel and I thought Craig Travail was going to be the, you know, the main guy throughout the book, but, but Jaeger kept knocking on the door and entering every scene, you know, he's, he just made a presence of himself and it got to be so much fun writing him. And I found that, uh, I was balancing sort of the reluctance of Craig Travail to enter this new phase in his life with the optimism of Chuck Jaeger Alexander which is exactly what Craig Travail needed, but also the reader needed it at the time to, to be able to have some fun with the book while Travail is struggling, you know, with his own journey. And, and really the book is about journeying a little bit in your third act. Um, that's the underlying theme. The, the top of the book is, you know, you got all these mysteries, right, including the mech deck. But the underlying theme is exploring this thing called life after career or transitions and retirement communities. And is it really the end or is it the beginning? That's one of the things that you make clear uh, when you're introducing the retirement community itself is that it is a place that is full of life. 
uh, in all aspects of the richness in life. Uh, the, the people prove themselves to be uh, very capable and to have had long stories uh, before they came together in that community. And Craig Travail is sort of our window into that because he's, he's coming in with a set of assumptions about what that place right, is going to be right, like, right? right? And he's discovering that these people, he's, he keeps being surprised by the incredible ability and insight that these other right. residents of the retirement community have. And in that way, you're, you're, it seems like, you know, painting a picture of the way that we think about aging and retirement, particularly mm -hmm. uh, the end of a career. I mean, I, I can remember back when I was young, every Sunday we had to go out to the retirement community where it, back then there were nursing homes. I mean, I had a very old great grandmother who was there. And uh, I can remember the smell in the hallway, you know, the, the, the iodine and the alcohol. And I said, I don't ever want to be around a quote, retirement community, but that has changed. I mean, retirement communities are much different now. It's not just a place, there are nursing homes out there, but that's not what you typically see or experience now when you talk about uh, retirement. I think people are starting to have a little bit different notion, I hope they are, about life after age 60 or age 65, that there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of experience in a retirement community. That's why I'm going to have fun. There will be a sequel, you know, where I create more characters who, who brought that experience into the community. And that experience is going to help Craig Travail solve more mysteries. Well, he, so he comes in and he's a guy whose career, we're not going to, we're not going to reveal any right, of the, right. the spoiler type plot points, but I don't think it reveals too much to say that he's a guy whose uh, legal career has come to its end. He's got a uh, relationship with his old law firm that is complicated, to say the least. Uh, he left in perhaps an unceremonious <laughs> fashion. He's about done with it. You have insisted that the book is not autobiographical, but I wonder if uh, you you perhaps are neither Craig nor Jaeger, but maybe Craig and Jaeger. Uh, well, you know, um, authors would be lying if they said that none of their characters didn't have a little bit of them in the character. You, you hope that... Uh, you know, sometimes your characters will teach you some things uh, as a person and to become a better person, too. But, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't tackle my managing partner on the way out of my, my law firm like Craig Travail did. But, uh, you know, some of the sentiments that he expresses about how the, the law practice had changed and things, uh, you know, yeah, that sneaks in. And, it, you know, people are saying, well, man, is this a tall building in uptown Charlotte? You worked in a tall building in uptown Charlotte. Is this your law firm? Oh, no, it's not my law firm. Uh, my law firm wouldn't wouldn't put up with the managing partner I put in my book and that kind of thing. To be is, clear, in <laughs> defense clear, of the former managing partner yeah. of McGuire Woods, you you didn't even think he deserved to be tackled, much less you didn't exactly, actually tackle Exactly, him. exactly. Well, Craig Travail arrives uh, in, this, in this new community and is immediately confronted with this mystery that then um, it, the rest of the book is essentially, I think it's fair to say, like a legal thriller, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's adventure there's uh, twists and turns, there's mystery involved, and, um, and it all culminates very dramatically at the end with, you know, with, with, with a reveal. And, but, but Craig, when he arrives at uh, the community, he, he, he gets dragged into this situation <laughs> almost against his will. And one of the things I noticed about him as a character is that he's not this uh, traditional hero protagonist type who comes in and just starts taking care of business rather he seems like the type of guy who like time and time again he has to be forced uh, to take action by the people around him they they almost like don't take no for an answer in first getting him involved mm -hmm. and then later there's like three major legal disputes in this book and mm -hmm. each time he's I think ambivalent is the best word. He's, he's very plus minus <laughs> about whether he even wants to deal with it, yeah. especially at the end when, you know, his own uh, future as a lawyer is, is in question. He literally isn't even, he's not acting on yeah. his own behalf. I mean, you have to remember that he's coming out of the fact that uh, he's lost his wife and he's not as enamored with the practice of law. And he sort of feels like uh, the way he exited the law firm, well, that's it. I'm done, you know. I can't really do anything else in the law. But these friends of his that he meets need his help. He's got expertise that can help them. And so he's a reluctant warrior, as you said, going into these things. Um, and it kind of harkens back to what I said earlier. You know, I talked about how I, was, I like those lawyers I've met over the years who are very competent but aren't flashy and aren't showy. Uh, they do their work and they do it like professionals. And that's how I like to think of 
uh, Craig Travail in this book, uh, you know, he will do his best, but he's still am he's not sure what he's doing there. <laughs> you refer to the type as a gentleman lawyer. Yeah. Uh, the type of lawyer, and I know exactly what you're talking about. You have to have a certain level of competence and confidence and a certain disposition uh, mm -hmm. to be that way. And I think some folks never get there. I think uh, some of us could possibly, uh, <laughs> if we <laughs> kept at it long enough and attained wisdom <laughs> and maturity, um, but we don't all. But uh, he's done that, and it, and, and it hasn't always been to his benefit professionally. Right. It's, right. it's actually been a hindrance. And you touch on those themes a little bit uh, in, uh, in this law firm, this fictional law firm that you describe where there's a tension between uh, where individual attorneys' ethics are questioned, mm -hmm. where um, the, the profit motive is uh, considered, um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's the importance of money uh, mm -hmm. in any business is right. recognized in that way with their big important client and what's going to happen with it and you've got um in that context this character robert elkin uh sort of our, our bad guy or mm -hmm. our, our villain if you will and he's the uh the the managing partner of this law firm who's got um not only uh the, the arrogance and the avarice that uh fits in with all the negative stereotypes of big firm lawyer guys but you know he's also embroiled uh, in, yeah. in the in the, the mystery uh, in in a lot of um, ways that are revealed uh, throughout the thing. But you you were careful to say that this was not your managing partner at McGuire Woods. But uh, I will venture a guess that you may have had some cases against this guy over the years. <laughs> yeah, and some people probably call me like a Robert Elkin from time to time over the years too. But he 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 is um, you know in fiction you ramp it up like eight or ten notches. I once went to a book signing at Parker Books where John Grisham was there and I asked him why he always made the judges and the lawyers out to be crooks. And he said, well, if I didn't, nobody would buy the books. You know, So, you know, he understands, as you and I do, that most people who practice law are trying to do the right thing. But you got to have a character in fiction like Robert Elkin who's not trying to do the right thing and who's doing it in underhanded ways. and is, So there are parts of it that were kind of like, yeah, the law practice is changing, yeah, profit margin, this and that. But all the other stuff that he gets into, and I won't talk about it too much, but uh, that's just the fun of fiction. The city of Charlotte, uh, of course, is where this thing is set. Uh, it's where you live and where you practiced law. It is uh, a character in mm. the book in its own right. And I wonder how you drew that distinction between the places in the, the book that are true, real places, even you know, restaurants and, um, and uh, the, 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 the statue of Captain Jack mm -hmm. is a real place. We can yeah. go there. Yeah. Uh, versus the places that are recognizable but are, are given different names or are based on other things. How did you decide which way to handle that? Uh, well, because I was a lawyer, I didn't want to be sued for defamation. So whenever it was something like it was a main character or it was a main location where most of the action occurred, you know, I have the Uptown Queen City Club. Well, we have a city club in Charlotte, but, you know, I'm not going to name the city club. I'm not going to name Charlotte Country Club. I'm going to change the names of these different clubs because, as I said in the book, they, in the afterward, they might not like the fact that Robert Elkin's uh, spending time in, in their location so anyway it, it's it's a dance you try to figure it out but you know the, the actual places themselves like Mecklenburg County Courthouse you know Green's Lunch uh, different restaurants you go to as long as you're passing through and it's part of, I think it adds to the to the novel that people can, can recognize the location and uh, you know I, I actually did go out though and get uh, permission from uh, Old Mecklenburg Brewery because I actually used uh, you know information directly from the label of the Captain Jack beer and so I sent them that page of the book and asked for their permission to actually quote from the label of the book you know um, and they gave the permission which was great because Jaeger loves Captain Jack beer as he says it's you got the delicious taste of freedom and every fresh delicious swig that's right <laughs> my wife and I Janet and I went down and did the Liberty Walk and these are places um, and, and Craig Travail, I did say this in the book, you know, that he, he traveled up and down Tryon Street all his life to handle cases and never really looked in the side mirrors. You know, he didn't, he didn't see these monuments, didn't pay attention to them. And, you know, I'd kind of done the same thing over the years, practicing Logtown. 
And so when I did the Liberty Walk, I didn't know that was here. I never knew that was here. And I'd driven past the statue of Captain Jack almost every morning when I went to work, but I'd never parked and gotten out and gone up to look at it. So I've driven by it hundreds of times. I live in Plaza Midwood, right. and I used yeah. to work on East Boulevard, and so I, I drove past that thing hundreds of times. And I, honestly, I hadn't thought that much about the, the mech deck. I, yeah. I knew Scott Cipher just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew his family, and I knew when he had written the book. And, I, and so from that, I knew that the mech deck existed and mm-hmm. I, that the controversy right. existed. It wasn't until reading your book that I really spent any time intentionally thinking about the fact that if this thing is real, if it existed, it's monumental in American history. And there was a period of time when people really thought it existed, you know, a long period of time in the 19th century, for sure, when it was it was treated as though it absolutely was real. And that right here was where the colonists declared their independence from England. And it raises this question that you uh, explore in the book, uh, in your book, about whether what was purported to be the Mecklenburg Declaration plagiarized from Thomas Jefferson's declaration or <laughs> whether it went <laughs> the other way around. And that in itself is is significant in American history. It really is uh, mm-hmm. profound. And it's interesting to me that it's we it's treated kind of dismissively probably everywhere except Charlotte. I mean, I don't know. Am I wrong about that? Well, you know, a lot of people move into Charlotte, right, from all over the place, and they find out about it for the first time, and they come in with their own preconceived notions about you know, who mattered most during the Revolutionary Conflict, and a lot of times it's Virginia or Massachusetts or Philadelphia, right? Charlotte's never really on the list. Um, So to find out that these backwoodsmen from the little town of Charlotte did this thing uh, one year before they got around to it in Philadelphia, people just kind of blow off, right? That No, that didn't happen. That well, and you know, we should say yeah. that they did a thing. Right. They Indisputably, did. they did a thing. Right. Really, the only question is whether they use the words, we declare independence, right? Yeah. What and they did do is meet and, exactly. and, and condemn uh, the actions of the king. Yeah, and you will see on Tryon Street, there is one of those historical markers that makes reference to the Mecklenburg Resolves. And that's a, if you want to, you know, just real quickly, the, the, there there was discovered in newspapers evidence of the Mecklenburg Resolves, but it reads like something a lawyer would write. It's about 25 resolutions about how we're going to run ourselves, you know, who's going to take up the taxes, who's going to be responsible for being just to the people, all these different kind of things that a lawyer wrote, not somebody who was writing this flowing declaration of independence. And so the historians say... Well, that's it. That's the proof, because that wasn't discovered until later. And they said, that's why they're wrong about the mech tech. You know, all they did was resolve, you know, to manage themselves, but they didn't declare independence. But there are others who say, well, think about our own Declaration of Independence and our own Constitution. The Constitution's got all the rules in it. The Declaration is written more lyrically, right? And it's declaring independence. And that's why, you know, I ascribe to the notion and take the side of those who say you can't have the Constitution without the Declaration. Are you telling me you're a believer in that? I am a believer in the Magdalene. Wow. <laughs> there are, there's a, a community of people who are great admirers of Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. who are invested in, uh, in it not being genuine because it, it could detract uh, from the way that he is regarded by history. And these are the same types of people who objected to it becoming widely known that Thomas Jefferson had a relationship with Sally Hemings, for right. example, until that became historically indisputable, right? right? It was very much denied and disputed. And so the history of people denying truthful things about Thomas Jefferson is, is you know, pretty well established. Mm-hmm. There are newspapers in North Carolina at the time that could have published the mech deck, but they have been lost to history. You know, there you can go online, you can find, seg, you know, different editions from different time periods, but not all of them. And so they've gone missing. There are also documents that ended up in the British archives that uh, maybe people haven't stumbled across yet that could have been misfiled, that could have information about what happened then. But, but the important thing to think about, though, is this, and that is not every fact that is known as historical fact is actually based upon a primary source, a document. A lot of it can depend on oral history. 
that's been corroborated from others. And if you think about it, we, we started out talking about mediation and lawsuits and that kind of thing. How many times do juries have to resolve cases where the facts depend solely upon the testimony of people? Well, that's what we had with the MEC deck. We had the testimony of those who were there and witnessed it. Um, and so it may be, Steve, that we never know for sure, and we have to rely upon the credibility of those witnesses. And if you look at the witnesses who would, who signed statements and testified about what happened, um, I mean, these were leaders in the Charlotte community. They were, they were uh, captains uh, and fighters in the Revolutionary War, honorable people. Um, you can't dismiss entirely oral history. I mean, people did it with Sally Hemmings, you mentioned, for years. It took DNA for people to change their mind, right? That's what I'm wondering, is if yeah. there is something like that, some yeah. sort of like DNA-like evidence that might answer this question definitively someday. Yeah. I suppose if, if you found a copy of the document itself, <laughs> like that would do it, well, right? Well, or maybe, th right? The, the thing is, copies did show up of the document over the years, but they were forgeries. Right, you know? right. And, and so there's always the thought that, uh, well, how do you definitely date it and how do you prove that it is what it is? And so I don't know. It also, is it really that, necessary because if you think about what's happening at the time um, had they done with the document what the citizens from Mecklenburg wanted them to do it would have been a year before they declared independence and at that time in the summer of 1775 the, the Congress Second Continental Congress was actually uh, petitioning with the Olive Branch petition to London to say we we decry the actions of Parliament but we still love you King George you know kind of a middle ground they were mediating right at right. the time to yeah, try to, trying to negotiate, trying to a, negotiate. a better deal right well, to give them time to build up the army right because they were they really prepared in 1775 to fight as much as they had to fight you know they were kind of moving around anyway um, I don't know that it matters as much uh, except to people that are just curious to definitely have an answer I think it's more interesting really that there is no definite answer and that people can debate it and argue about it and have fun talking about it. Well, and you've done more than talk about it. You've yeah. used it as a springboard for a mystery that you've incorporated into a novel uh, filled with characters. I, I, I was, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention NASCAR Nelly. <laughs> and the reason is because she, along with, so NASCAR Nelly, along with another uh, aged resident of the indie, uh, the Godfather. These right. are two that leapt off the page for me uh, as visual characters. These mm -hmm. are people that uh, you described in such a I, I could see these mm -hmm. characters. Uh, NASCAR Nelly in particular, she scooted around <laughs> on her motorized wheelchair very quickly uh, around the grounds of the retirement community. And I wonder as you're writing it, uh, what your process is for um, imagining these people visually and describing mm -hmm. them visually. Yeah, so I ascribe to the notion that I don't want to over-describe the character, but I want to give an, enough of a description, either through their names or a little bit about their appearance, that uh, the, the reader can then use their imagination and come up with a character. I'm not a fan of the books that describe, you know, characters from their nose to their toes, you know, but uh, just give them enough so they, they can visualize who the character is. And in my writing process, I found that... Uh, characters come to me in the strangest ways I'll be writing a scene and have an idea and this character will come to mind and enter the scene and I'll just I'll just start writing and uh, that's the joy of writing fiction is finding out things about your story that you didn't know when you sat down you've got some legal proceedings mm. described in this book uh, a few of them and I wonder how your background as a lawyer yourself and as a reader informed your approach to writing a dramatic fiction about a legal proceeding because mm -hmm. it seems to me like there's a challenge there on the one hand you could go too deep on mm -hmm. the dry details right. that your most of your readers aren't going to know or care about at all on the other hand, I'm sure it would offend all of your sensibilities <laughs> to write stuff that was just nonsense, too. It's a right. complete, wildly <laughs> inaccurate, which we as lawyers are used to seeing in dramatic presentations of lawyers' work. You know, we yeah. see stuff that just would never happen ever, and it can be grating at times. Mm -hmm. How do you strike that balance? So I want uh, any lawyer who reads it to 
say, okay, yeah, that that makes sense. That I can I can see that. And I want any reader who's not a lawyer who reads it to be able to put themselves in there and and understand what's going on, and maybe get a little feel for the law and what that case is about. So I started. I'd never tried a will contest. I mean. Uh, not to a jury trial. I mean, I'd been involved a little bit. I'd done a little research. The first thing I did, what do you think I did? I went and found the pattern jury instructions for the caveat case. And I printed out all the different instructions related to caveats. And I said, okay, I don't want to make this too complicated, but these are the elements. These are the things I'm going to have to prove. I'm going to have to weave that into the conversation as we move forward. And I had fun doing it because Craig Travails, it turns out, he had never handled a will contest either. And so he was learning as he went along, too, and trying to come up with strategies of how. And the only reason, just so the listeners know, that the will contest is involved in this case is because in the opening scene, this man who dies, who was working on a manuscript on the mech deck, uh, not only is the manuscript missing when they find his body, but they also found a handwritten will that leaves us $50 million to the most despised resident at the Indy and cuts his beloved granddaughter out of the will. And she happens to be close friends with Harriet Keaton and, Ye- and Chuck Yeager Alexander who want to pull <laughs> Craig Travail in to go represent, you know, Lori and win this will contest. So I thought that would be a fun way to go to court. And so all of my mysteries are going to have – and, you know, Steve, it's fun to stay involved in the law that way because I can go back and think back to cases I've handled um, and plots that involve, you know, cases. And I'll probably pull from – some of my own experiences and thinking about legal plots for the next uh, books. That it makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, it's it's evident in this book, and I've read some of John Gershom's book too. Is, mm-hmm. And and what in both cases you've got these legal situations uh, that are plausible on their face, but right. they've got a little turn right. of the screw <laughs> that makes right. it extra special, dramatic. You know, right. and, uh, but but you can see it's it's tethered enough to reality um, that it rings true mm-hmm. and. Um, and it must have been quite something for you in painting these pictures to go back over the years. Uh, you, you like Tra- Craig Travail. Craig Travail finds himself in these circumstances, thrust into mm-hmm. these circumstances where it's almost being insisted by um, the people that, are, that have newly come into his life that he helped them out. Yeah, and, and as you'll notice, uh, even though he was reluctant, um, being the professional he is, when he got into it, he wanted to do a good job, you know, for his client. Well, and he enjoyed sticking it to the other side too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, yeah. he wasn't above. <laughs> uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't mind winning. Taking a little pleasure, yeah, particularly <laughs> yeah. Uh, given his adversary from uh-huh. time to Although time. Although he doesn't always win in this book, that's that's true. You know. Well, this is uh, it's an exciting moment um, in the in the the history of the book. I mean, things are about to really ramp up, right? I mean, I think yeah. it's it's obviously your appearance on the Steve Dunn podcast. Uh, this is what's going to catapult it forward. That's right. <laughs> like from from this point forward, I think it's only it's going to be a, mo- a momentum. It, it, it'll right? be all downhill from here. <laughs> that's right. But like a snowball rolling downhill, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it it is very exciting that the the print edition is about to uh, to come out. So what's next? You have this uh, very well-organized plan that's been in place for months. Uh, you've mm-hmm. been sending out the advanced copies. You've right. been very methodically and on a schedule, um, taking step by step. What are the next ones, and, and what's going to happen on May 20th? Yeah, so um, the the events I'm having in Charlotte uh, right after the book releases on April 5th, I'm on April 7th, we're at Parker Books uh, at 7 in the evening with Scott Seifert. We're going to talk about some of the history of the Mech Deck and how I started writing this novel. On April 19th, everyone's invited to come out to Old Mac Brewery. We're going to have some uh, reenactors there. We're going to have a reading uh, by Thomas Polk of the Mech Deck. We're going to have a little colonial skit. Uh, we'll have books, beer, some you know kind of things like that, so that'll be fun. And then I'll be at various bookstores uh, around the state. Uh, I'll be at Main Street Books and up Quail Ridge in Raleigh and Malaprops up in Nashville and some other places. And I'm doing the retirement community tour in Charlotte. So we'll be at all the retirement communities uh, talking about uh, the book. And and I'm starting to cogitate uh, on the next book. So that's part of the process is kind of getting going, uh, you know, with uh, book two. Well, Landis Wade, if there's one thing I've observed about you, it's that you're unlikely to slow down <laughs> anytime soon. Uh, you... <laughs> You have retired from the practice of law, which means only that you're not being a lawyer anymore. You are just as busy as you ever were, uh, but I hope you're having a lot of fun. Oh, it's great fun, and I love coming and talking about this. This has been a privilege to be here with you on 
on the podcast today to just to, just to talk about it because I spent uh, so many years alone writing it. It's fun to get out there and share it. Well, I'm so glad that you're here today. Thank you for being with me today on the Steve Dunn Podcast. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Thank you.